Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Dr. James Colgrove. Dr. Colgrove is a professor of sociomedical sciences at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health and the dean of the pre-medical program at the Columbia School of General Studies. Dr. Colgrove's research examines the relationship between individual rights and the collective well-being and the social, political, and legal processes through which public health policies have been mediated in American history. He's authored several books, including Epidemic City, The Politics of Public Health in New York from Russell Sage Foundation, and State of Immunity, The Politics of Vaccination in 20th Century America from the University of California Press. He recently published a piece in The Conversation that details the history of vaccine mandates in the United States, which he also examined in a 2004 paper in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Colgrove. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The first question I'd like to ask our guests is, what is your academic origin story? I worked in community-based public health uh, for many years before going back to graduate school. And I was always fascinated by the way that history would be invoked in public health policy debates. So we should or should not control a particular disease in this way or that way, because that's what history suggests we should do. People would say, for example, we should apply these measures to HIV AIDS, quarantine or contact tracing, uh, or we should not because of this or that uh, historical experience. And I always found myself wanting to know more about the history. Um, And I also sort of suspected that often the people making those arguments really had no idea what they were talking about and that they could really make almost any claim they wanted without fear of contradiction because most people don't know the history of public health and medicine. So I was fortunate to find a graduate program uh, here at Columbia, where I've spent my entire academic career, that provides combined doctoral training in public health and history. Mm. And I'm now part of a team of faculty at Columbia who do policy-oriented historical research. So we look at current public health issues and we ask, how can an understanding of history inform our decisions about this issue today? History doesn't usually provide clear-cut answers, which is unfortunate because that's what policymakers usually want. Mm. Um, But history can help us, I think, diagnose a situation better and to give us a better understanding of of why we are in a given situation, how we ended up where we are today, and Mm -hmm. what kinds of, of considerations we should be mindful of. The public health questions um, that I'm most interested in are really ethical and political ones. So public health is a discipline that focuses on communities and populations, and it raises questions about the relationship between the individual and the community, questions of rights and responsibilities, Mm -hmm. questions of mutual obligations, questions of how do we all get along together in a, in a pluralistic and closely interconnected society? And those aren't primarily scientific questions. Obviously, mm-hmm. 
we have to have the best science to help us answer those questions, but ultimately those are value judgments. And those kinds of questions have really been front and center throughout the COVID pandemic over issues like restrictions on uh, travel and restrictions on public gatherings, business closings, mask requirements, um, and now compulsory uh, COVID vaccination. So how much Uh, Can we, should we limit the individual freedom of people in order to protect those people and also the community as as a whole? I was originally drawn to studying the issue of vaccination because it's one of the areas where questions of rights and responsibilities are most complicated, I think, and, and challenging. And that's because of the unique nature of vaccines. So vaccination has a dual benefit to the person who receives the vaccine, but also to others around them through the creation of of herd immunity. So when I get vaccinated, I'm doing it to protect myself, obviously, but I'm also protecting others, people who are close to me, um, but also people in my community, especially people who might be vulnerable in Mm -hmm. some way, people who are immune compromised, people who are elderly, infants, people who might be particularly at risk from infectious diseases that I could pass along if I'm not vaccinated. So we all, we all benefit when more of us are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been studying vaccination policies for a couple of decades now. Um, I started researching the history of vaccination around 2000, around the early 2000s. This was not long after the publication of a paper in The Lancet um, in 1998, suggesting that there was a causal connection between autism and MMR vaccination, measles, mumps, rubella, Mm -hmm. um, a paper that was later determined to be fraudulent and was retracted. Um, The anti-vaccination movement was, was gaining strength and visibility around this time. There were many debates about the benefits and the risks of vaccines. There were debates in state legislatures about what kinds of requirements uh, schools should have for vaccination, who, if anyone, should be allowed to opt out, what kind of exemptions we should have. Um, And all of those questions have deep historical roots. Um, We, as a country, have been grappling with them for as long as we've had vaccination since the first vaccination against smallpox in the 19th century. Obviously, we are still grappling with them today. Right. True. And that is, I mean, the timeliness couldn't be beat, actually, not in a good way, of course. I, I don't suspect you thought that your work would become so relevant <laughs> well, uh, this year. Seen, yeah. I mean, we've seen there have been sort of recurrent controversies over the past two decades. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a big issue in 2015 with the multi-state outbreak of measles that started in Disneyland. So, you know, regularly controversies have occurred. I certainly um, never foresaw things playing out as they are now. I mean, COVID in a way is not, should not be a surprise. So public Mm -hmm. folks have been warning for years it's a matter of, of when, not if, we would mm-hmm. face some new you know, novel pathogen. Um, mm-hmm. I think most people have been surprised by the way that it has played out globally. <laughs> right. Understated. Understatement. Um, 
well, just to put this into context for anyone who may be listening, you know, later on or, or whenever, um, we're speaking in mid-November 2021 as the vaccine rollout for children age 5 to 11 is rapidly underway. Um, on a personal note, my two small children are scheduled tomorrow afternoon for their first vaccine shots. Um, so we're very timely this week talking to you. Um, my question is based on what you've seen so far and, and based on all of your, your research and, and knowing what you know, do you think that the United States is on track for COVID-19 to be added to the list of currently mandated vaccines that children have to get to attend public education in this country? That's certainly the question of the moment. Um, California announced last month that it would add COVID vaccination to the list of required vaccinations for elementary school kids in fall of 2022, um, once the vaccine has received full FDA approval as, okay. as expected. Um, and California was the first state to announce that intention. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we've seen something like 20 states explicitly prohibit COVID vaccination mandates. So two polar opposite approaches. And I think that divide is probably a sign of things to come. Mm -hmm. um, stances towards COVID vaccination have become sharply polarized um, and politicized in this country in a way that's really unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, and I think very unfortunate for public health. Given that context, given the current landscape, I don't think we can expect to see school mandates becoming the norm anytime soon, certainly not in at least half the country. And mm -hmm. all of these decisions reside at the state level. Historically, states have had a wide responsibility for public health, and that's why states look different from each other in many realms of public health. Um, so it's up, to, it's up to individual state governors, legislators, and health departments. I think the, the question now is what's going to happen in those states where the population and the political leadership have been more supportive of COVID vaccination mm. um, and more supportive of, of sort of robust measures to, to encourage people to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when the states that have explicitly um, said that, they, that the mandates can't happen, that's happening on a state legislative level? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes by governor's executive order. It can happen through different political mechanisms, but it's all at the state level. And, you know, often those measures have been really a response to the employer mandates. I mean, that's uh -huh. been um, as much of a concern as school-based mandates. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the, the measures that have been passed generally cover any kind of mandatory measure across the board. In your recent commentary in the conversation, you gave a terrific condensed history of vaccine mandates in the United States and the people that object to them. Public school mandates were upheld by the Supreme Court in 1905 and 1922, which you also detail in your paper in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. Do you think that we are on course for the current anti-vaccine movement to make it that high in the court system if there becomes a, a legal case that, that makes its way up? I would say that's very unlikely, though so not impossible. Okay. Over the last century, courts have been very consistent in upholding vaccine mandates as okay. reasonable and necessary exercises of state public health powers. 
as recently as 2010, a circuit court of appeals turned down a challenge from mm. a plaintiff in West Virginia against that state's uh, compulsory vaccination law. In general, courts have been quite deferential to public health regulations mm. uh, historically um, and have, have usually upheld public health regulations provided that those regulations are based in science, that they are reasonable and justifiable, that they're not overbroad, that they are consistently applied in ways that don't violate any constitutional rights like equal protection or due process. Um, so I think it, I would be very surprised if we saw a case making its way to the Supreme Court just because of the, the very well-established uh, uh, line of, of legal cases. I think where we might see some break with precedent is around the issue of exemptions, which mm. people should be allowed to opt out to either exempt their children from being vaccinated for school or should be able themselves to opt out of workplace mandates for their employer. And in particular, around the question of religious exemptions. So <laughs> courts, um, have very clearly stated that compulsory vaccination laws do not have to include religious exemptions. There's a famous 1944 Supreme Court case that basically said the right to practice religion freely does not include the right to expose the community to ill health or death. Hmm. So it's pretty well established legally that um, that uh, generally applicable laws can uh, can sort of outweigh um, religious practice. Most states do offer religious exemptions to school vaccination requirements, but they don't have to. Oh, okay. Um, ideas about religious liberty evolve, and recent Supreme Court decisions in the context of COVID have suggested that the Supreme Court is looking more closely now at religious liberty claims. Hmm. Most COVID vaccination requirements so far seem to be incorporating religious exemptions. They have been written in a way that allows people to opt out, but we might, for example, see a suit brought by someone whose request for a religious exemption is denied. I see. Um, that's one of the challenges of including a religious exemption. It's hard to prove. <laughs> Somebody has to yeah. evaluate the yeah. strength and the sincerity of that. And right. people do get their requests denied. And somebody could conceivably argue that that denial is unfairly burdening their practice of religious belief. So we might see courts um, setting new standards, for example, around um, requirements for religious exemptions and what those exemptions look like exactly. So the, the basic premise that vaccination mandates are constitutional, that I think remains very solid. And mm. I wouldn't expect to see any changes in that. Um, I certainly hope not. That would be right. a very bad thing for public health. But the religious exemption is a much grayer, not scientifically backed area. <laughs> right. Like and, and there have been a couple of very high profile cases around um, public gatherings where mm. courts have enjoined governments, have prevented governments from placing restrictions on church services, for example, 
Um, those were justified on public health grounds because that's a, a situation where disease can spread. But the, the counter argument that some courts have agreed with is that that is un- inappropriately burdening religious practice. Impeding their freedom, right? I understand that. Um, and I agree with you. That's much more complicated. <laughs> um, You also note in your piece from the conversation, and I'm going to quote you here, that misinformation spread over the internet and social media has weakened the public consensus about the value of vaccination that allowed these laws to be enacted and that lawmakers will need to proceed with caution. Can you expand on that last piece of advice that you gave? What what can lawmakers, and for that matter, those of us in the general public, what can we do to help convince those that are unsure of vaccine safety or efficacy? Policymakers right now are facing what I think is a very difficult situation with trying to balance two competing imperatives with respect to public acceptance of COVID vaccination. So the first imperative, I think, is give it time. Mm. Many people need time after a new vaccine is licensed to feel comfortable before taking it themselves or giving it to their children. And to be clear, I don't think that we need more time to make sure that the vaccines we have are safe. I think we can feel very confident right now that they are safe and effective based on the data that we have so far. But many people just need more time psychologically to feel more comfortable that a vaccine is safe. And it was the vaccines were developed on a much faster timeline. People are in some cases confused about how it's possible that we can be so confident given the rapid timeline. So Mm -hmm. people just, they need time to get used to it. And we actually learned this very vividly in 2006 when a vaccine was licensed against HPV. Oh, right. human papillomavirus, Mm -hmm. a very, very common virus, which can lead to cervical cancer. So the vaccine was licensed in 2006. Within a few months, a handful of states introduced legislation to make that vaccination mandatory for middle school attendance. Mm -hmm. And that effort just blew up in everybody's face. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of parents said, what's going on here? This vaccine is too new. One day I had never even heard of the HPV vaccine. The next day you're telling me that my teenager has to get it before they can go to middle school. Mm -hmm. So obviously there are many differences between HPV and COVID, but I think the lesson learned there is that there are risks in moving too fast. Right, right, right. So that's the first consideration, which is you need to allow time. The other imperative, unfortunately, in tension with the first one is that we really need to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. So the numbers in the US are mostly going in the right direction, but people are continuing to get sick and to die. And the longer COVID circulates in the community, the greater is the risk that we will develop uh, viral variants like Delta. Mm -hmm. So there's some urgency now to achieve high levels of vaccine use as soon as possible, especially now that we are heading into flu season. Mm -hmm. So for those people who are now hesitant because they think the vaccine is, is just too new or that we need more time, 
we can hope that as time passes and even more evidence continues to accumulate that the vaccines are safe and effective, holdouts will eventually come around and become more open. Um, unfortunately, as we discussed earlier, uh, there are some people who for a variety of reasons are dead set against it um, in many cases for ideological reasons that are unlikely to be swayed by more evidence. Reasoned with, right? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a real, a real challenge that a lot of people in public health have been paying attention to in the last mm -hmm. couple of decades and really bringing, bringing lots of, attempting to bring lots of tools to bear from psychology and communication science and everything we know about decision-making Mm. Um, you know, people, people aren't rational decision makers, we know that. And so just giving people information is not, is not enough. I mean, I mm -hmm. think good, solid scientific information is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You have to appeal to emotions, you have to appeal to, um, to, to peers and to peer norms and community norms. And values, yeah. The values. These are the, you're exactly right. These are their issues of value, um, and and trust. Um, mm -hmm. Trust is a is a huge uh, huge issue. People need to need to receive messages from people that they trust from mm. trusted messengers in their community. Whether that's um, a member of the clergy, whether that is their you know, their friend in their, in their club, it's, it's whoever. Mm -hmm. So you need an approach that's very tailored that looks specifically at why people are not getting vaccinated and mm -hmm. what is their, what is their individual situation. Unfortunately, we know a lot more about what doesn't work than what <laughs> does work. Right. Right. I really, I'm struck by what you said and thinking about how I've had so many friends start sentences lately with, you know, I can't wait to read the study 20 years from now that's going to say this and how we're all sort of thinking these hypothetical long-term COVID thoughts and how there just isn't a single subject that it's not going to touch, you know, behavioral psychology is, is something that I'm really personally just interested in. And, I, and what you just said, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely playing into that as well. It's just kind of, it's so pervasive across, you know, because it's affected all of us in every, every waking hour for the last nearly two years. Um, that's really interesting. And the other thing I wanted to mention, which is sort of not um, directly related to what you just said, but it's maybe slightly, was one of the things in your paper um, in Bulletin of History of Medicine that really struck me because it just was something I had never thought of and it was never put that way was um, when you were talking about the smallpox vaccine, um, how that was the first example of something that people were being compelled to do as opposed to being compelled not to do um, mm -hmm. in terms of public health, you know, just wash your hands mm -hmm. or don't like, I think it was don't dump your toilet out the window. That was like, don't do that versus like, you need to go have this thing scratched into your arm, which is like just so much more of a, an mm -hmm. effort. Um, and I was really struck by that and thinking about how, you know, we, I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, how it's, you're asking somebody to do something versus just simply mm -hmm. stay home. And that's, that's, that's a kind of a whole nother step for, for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I do. I think that's, that is a particular challenge with respect to vaccination, because there is that element of bodily invasiveness. It right, is, right. It is, it is a bodily intrusion. And, 
And it's, and it's an intervention that we give to healthy people, to people mm-hmm. who are not yet sick. And we're asking them to undergo a risk. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, vaccines are, are very, very safe today across the board. They, the, the, the minor risks that they carry are vastly outweighed by the risks of the diseases that they protect against. Right. But vaccines carry risks. If, even even small risks, no medical intervention is completely risk free, and so we we are asking people, healthy people, to undergo a risk or or you know subject their children to a risk mm-hmm. in the promise of future protection. So I I think it's not it's not surprising that people have concerns and misgivings about this. I think. Mm-hmm. What may be more surprising is that we've been as successful as we have been in getting so many people to accept mm-hmm. the vaccine. Yeah. The thing you're afraid of right in front of your face is so much mm-hmm. more tangible than the unknown fear that you can't wrap your head around. And there's, right. there's so Absolutely. much psychology behind it. That's really fascinating. Right. And people have a preference for errors of omission over errors of commission. So this right. is right. better. It's better to cause the harm. Just like if you don't do anything, you can feel like you weren't responsible. Right. For it. Yeah. It feels exactly. much, it's worse to you to, to cause what's hard for people to appreciate though, is that not making that decision to not vaccinate, that is taking an action. That is mm-hmm. a form mm-hmm. of taking an action. And, and it's, it's, it's hard for people to, to think of it that way. Yeah. We're just, it's the, the ethics and, and, the ethics. It's just, it's, it gets real kind of, you know, exponentially bigger in your head. And as my 10 year old says, it kind of makes his head hurt when we start explaining <laughs> to him. He's all on board. He's very excited for his shot tomorrow. But, uh, but when you explain the, the, like what you said at the very beginning of how it's not just about your own protection, it's about protecting everybody else. What are you, what are you currently working on? What research uh, do you have going on right now? Mm-hmm. So I just finished a paper that's coming out in an upcoming issue of the American Journal of Public Health, which I co-authored with uh, one of our PhD students here at Columbia. The paper looks at the history of the idea that vaccine refusal is an issue of freedom and rights. Mm. So, you know, the concept of freedom is just so central to our political culture, to our historical ideas about who we are as a country. And I was really interested in the history of those ideas and that rhetoric as they have been applied to vaccination. So there's been some some folks have done research in recent years suggesting that vaccine critics have increasingly framed vaccine refusal as an issue of rights. Right. So, for example, there was an analysis after the 2015 Disneyland measles outbreak where researchers looked at social media posts. They looked at what oh. people were writing on Facebook and they found that rejection of vaccines was was being framed more often than before as a right or a freedom or inter- hmm. couched in terms of freedom. And in a way, that's a kind of a strategic argument for mm-hmm. vaccine critics to make because yeah. it moves the debate away from matters of fact into matters of judgment or an opinion. So right. the claim that vaccines cause autism, for example, that has been convincingly refuted by a mountain of scientific evidence. So if I'm trying to say, well, I don't want to vaccinate because vaccines cause autism, you can disprove that right. claim. But if I make the claim that I don't want to do it because it's my right, 
equal rights claims are not really possible to refute or not because they're not they're mm-hmm. not factual claims. They mm-hmm. are in their judgments and mm-hmm. rights claims are very, very powerful in yeah. our society. And they, they protect mm-hmm. you in a little, in, mm-hmm. it, saying it's my right doesn't necessarily make you a selfish person, <laughs> you know, which would be the argument, like just do it for the good of humanity. Cause you're, yeah. you know, you care about human, but it's true. It's, it's. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's not wrong. I mean, people do have the right to bodily integrity, but no, ethical school says that that right is unlimited. Mm-hmm. No ethical system says that you have a right to endanger others through your actions or mm-hmm. to, to harm others. But rights claims often get framed in a very sort of absolutist way that doesn't really permit of any argument. And historically, anti-vaccination rhetoric in this country has always had those sort of two linked threads. So one is vaccines are unsafe. The other is that efforts to force or even encourage vaccination represents a violation of rights. Mm -hmm. And those two threads of argument have been woven together over the past two centuries with one or the other thread sort of becoming more prominent at different times. We're now in a moment where I think rights claims for various reasons are really getting much more prominence. Anyway, so mm-hmm. I was I was interested in this paper and looking at how those arguments first took shape in the latter part of the 19th century. Mm. I've seen a several um, political cartoons from the mm-hmm. turn of the century in the 1910s, 1920s that are just frighteningly applicable that you could just <laughs> change their clothes and it would be a cartoon that someone could run today. So it's, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, absolutely, it's not comforting at all that nothing's changed in a hundred years. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you can read vaccine critical rhetoric from the latter part of the 19th century with and change virtually no language. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the same, it's the same kind. It's the same language that you see today. It's, it's very, it's very durable. I think that's, that's one reason why it, it retains such power is that it, it draws yeah like you said you can't yeah you can't fact argue it down it's just it's mm-hmm. it's um it's people sticking to their guns well thank you so much i'm really looking forward to that paper as well um and i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today this has been really great it's a pleasure thank you very much for taking the time this podcast is a production of johns hopkins university press for more information please visit press.jhu.edu journals <laughs>